Create, connect, communicate. Create, connect, communicate. Magical, enigmatical, gift of gab, super, super agile, story, story from the space man. Come well lit. <laughs> Yeah, like if you go like this, you can kind of hear oh, yeah. the voice yeah, coming yeah, out. Totally. Yeah, so like you just want to point your your voice into the top. Right at it. And get pretty much as close as you want. They've they've been sanitized as well, so no <laughs> worries. And then, um, yeah, even when we're looking at each other, as long as you just kind of point it, point your voice towards there. Okay. And if we're looking at each other, then probably closer is better. Call me out if... Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll, I'll just like, cool, nice. Yeah. We will get this party started. Let's do it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Firelight Chats. We are here in Da'an, Taipei, Taiwan, with a very, very special guest for all of those nature lovers out there, all of those travel lovers out there, all of those adventure lovers out there, and probably a lot more as well. We have Mr. Michael McCreesh. What's up? What's up, what's up? Michael McCreesh is the co-founder of Parkbus. And of course, he will explain more about that. The parent company is called Origin Wild. That's right. Michael has a lot of stories in tourism, adventure, higher education as well. We have a lot of things, I think, to talk about today. So mm, yeah, I can't wait. Nice. Thank you very much for being here, Michael. Can you give us a little introduction of yourself? Sure. Yeah, thanks, Kane, for having me here. Mocha for the hospitality. Yes. Um, my name is Michael McCreesh. I am uh, born just outside of Toronto, Canada. Been living in Taiwan for about three years. I've been working in the tourism industry for over 20 years mm. and pretty passionate about sustainable economic development okay. that's run through tourism. Nice. So can we hear your Why Taiwan story? You've been here for three years. Why Taiwan? Uh, family. I think mm. was the main reason. So probably around 2018, we were living in Toronto, myself, my wife and my two kids. And we started to see the challenge that was bubbling up with regards to my children learning and speaking Mandarin mm. and feeling confident about it and seeing the applicability of, you know, why, why do I have to speak Mandarin? Mm -hmm. And so uh, we made the move to Taiwan, thinking that it was going to prove to be easier for the children to learn Mandarin while retaining their English than it was in Canada, Canada where they were going to be able to learn English, but holding on to their Chinese. So mm. um, plus the first four, five years of their lives, they were close with, with my grandparents mm. or sorry, my parents, their grandparents. And so we decided to move back so they could reconnect with their family here. So their Agong, mm. uh, their Jojo and their Ama. So mm -hmm. that's been pretty great and pretty amazing to see them pick up the language and little intricacies of the culture you know so mm. it's pretty neat too and i think it just broadens their perspective on life so for now we're here mm. and that's kind of why we, we we came here so i guess we should mention that your wife is taiwanese my wife is taiwanese okay yeah, yeah. and yeah. that's why you want to kind of connect the kids back to their historical or kind of uh cultural roots as well yeah yeah and mm. and just knowing a little bit about your background i'm sure you can kind of relate with regards to the challenge that new immigrants have in other countries to kind of hold on to their culture and pass down some of those traditions 
maybe not the tradition so much as just like the intangible part of the culture that, you know, exists. And um, so, yeah, we wanted to make sure that they knew where they came from. Mm, exactly. I mean, language is a big one, right? Yeah. And yeah. it's so easy to lose that when you're, you know, living abroad in, in the States or in Canada or a Western country. Totally. Yeah. So in Canada, it's mandatory to take French classes between grade five and grade 10. Mm. Um, Even outside of Montreal. Outside of Montreal, across the country. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Except if you ask somebody, their second language would probably be, if they do come from an immigrant family, would be their parents' native tongue rather mm. than French. And a part of it is just the applicability, right? Like if you take classes here, Chinese classes, Mandarin classes here, and you get taught how to ask for a coffee, you leave the door, you go out and you ask for a coffee. And then it imprints that, I think, on your brain and you're able to kind of retain that a little bit more. So, mm. you know, growing up in Toronto, you don't really have a lot of opportunities to speak French. You know, poof, you, mm. you, you know, go through a whole grade school of learning French and you just don't have the ability to kind of practice it. So and I think that was kind of happening with my kids, right? They would be taught something by my wife and then she would try and reconnect them again to that same phrase, that same concept. And they just didn't they weren't able to retain it mm. uh, over time. So that's why we're here. That's the mm. why. So what about your French? Uh, worse than my Chinese. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. I definitely. see. Um, and what about your Chinese? Had you kind of been interested in Taiwan or, you know, uh, the Chinese speaking kind of region before you had met your wife? Or was it because of your wife? We can put it all on, on your wife for yeah. your interest. Uh, so I originally lived in Taiwan for about three years, 2005 to 2008. I was at my house at university. I had a buddy coming through on his way to Toronto. He stopped off. He was living in Taiwan at the time. And uh, he just said, you got to check this out after you're done school. And I guess that's what made my first trip happen. And when I was here, I realized that from a linguistic perspective, I think Taiwan has probably the most accessible Mandarin, even though the traditional characters might be perceived as a little bit more difficult. Mm -hmm. I think once you get past that intimidation factor, learning Mandarin is a pretty accessible language, right? Mm -hmm. There's, mm -hmm. you know, there's no you know, there's no conjugating of verbs, which, you exactly. know, when it comes to French or English, um, it's a nightmare, right? But, yeah, um, it's and a big that, one. Yeah, and for tenses sure. too. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So uh, when I got here, I took a couple classes. I went to Wumha uh, Dashui and learned a little bit enough that kind of stuck with me hmm. after I left Taiwan in 2008, spent about 11 years traveling around. Some of that stuck so that when I landed back here, there was like a period of time where my language was just refreshing. Hmm. Uh, and now I think I kind of hit a plateau, unfortunately, and I'm trying to carve out that time where I can get back into classes because yeah. I think it's really important for what I do. That's the hardest part, right? Carving out that time. Yeah, yeah. I think it pays dividends, though, mm. I think, in terms of the way that you can connect with a place. Certainly, during that first period of time, I noticed that there were a lot of things that I was missing in terms mm. of even just food, right? I think a lot of people come here and they don't speak the language and then they're inhibited by the fact that they can't actually go out there and communicate and ask for, you know, what's good, what, what are the specials, mm -hmm. uh, what's local. Um, and then you get outside of Taipei and certainly it's better now than it used to be, but it's hard to just drop in, read a menu, Mm. Uh, you know, if you have any allergies or if you have any food restrictions, that stuff gets a little bit challenging. Yeah, you mentioned it's a little bit different from the last time you were here, right? You kind of took a pretty big gap between 2008 and this recent stint, right? Yeah. Uh, why did you leave Taiwan in 2008? When I think of 2008, I think of the financial crisis. And I don't know if it was related to that at all. But 
why did you leave? And uh, secondly, what are some of the biggest changes that you saw when you did come back? Yeah, I left Taiwan December 2008, primarily to pursue a postgrad. So I went and moved to Australia, lived in Melbourne, went to Monash University to do my master's of tourism. Great and university. Yeah, it's a good university. It's mm -hmm. fun. And Melbourne's an awesome city, has a lot of parallels actually to Toronto in terms of its art and culture and music and food. So fit right in there and mm. uh, spent a year and a half there. That was the main reason I left was mm. just to sort of, you know, I, I thought, okay, at the time, three years is a good pause on a career, uh, but I got to get things kind of moving again because when I was here the first time, I was just teaching English. And not that that's mm. a dead-end gig by any means, but I just didn't see really any progress or mm. pathway forward that I was really going to feel fulfilled with. Mm -hmm. So did that. It was a course-based master's program with a dissertation at the end. And while I was in the program, I started to realize that the courses actually weren't really fulfilling. And a part of that, I think, is the fact that Australia at the time, and still, I guess it's a little bit different now, but they really pursued international students as part of an economic pillar within their, like it was the second largest economic driver in the country after mm. uh, natural resources. Wow. So, so yeah, it was a multi-billion dollar industry and, you know, they streamlined visas, they streamline application programs, and they help with creating value-added visas. So these student visas that would be attached to a, a potential working visa afterwards, mm -hmm. which is a really strong proposition for an international student, right? They, they want to go and then they want to plant roots and maybe get a job. And then there's a pathway to citizenship or permanent residency. Right. Yeah. Ultimately. Mm. So what I found was that in those classes, the dialogue, I mean, why I chose a course-based class is because I like to communicate with people and chat and bounce ideas off and learn from other people and proposition for course-based programs with a lot of international students is that you're really getting a diverse perspective on issues, mm -hmm. right? That you're able to have this conversation and people are able to bring in examples from other parts of the world. But mm -hmm. I didn't really feel that was happening. Like I felt like the classes were stagnant and weren't really kind of providing that dynamic environment. So I went to my prof and the director of the program and I said, is there any other way that I could kind of do a special project or any kind of initiative that would complement the course-based work and maybe I can skip some of the courses? And so there was a couple of research projects that I worked on and, and one of those was... I was invited to go up to the northwest of mm. Australia, this small little fishing town called Broome, mm. uh, famous for its pearling history and fishing. And so I went up there and I was invited to go work on a ecotourism project that was an eco-resort based on traditional land. Mm. So this developer had signed a 99-year lease with the traditional landowners and they were looking for opportunities to train their community members to be guides to develop products that could actually generate revenue for them rather than just the lease so mm. that was part of their lease agreement so i went up there and developed a tour guide training manual developed probably half a dozen cultural tours mm. and it was about six months of me going into a mangrove forest with the daughter of the traditional land uh, or the wow. daughter of the chief of the traditional landowners the tribe and i went over to the mangrove forest for probably about four months we would just go in there every morning and we would just go muck around we'd catch mud crabs and stingrays and go fishing and we built a couple of structures out there so it could help facilitate tours off-site so it was a pretty wow. amazing experience yeah for sure mm. the western half of australia is pretty infamously barren and remote and oh. unpopulated yeah no it is for sure i mean it's huge right <laughs> it's the size of western europe yeah um, right. and probably has a population of a million people or so maybe a couple million people but most of that's based in perth okay. and, and margaret river down in the south so actually when i was heading out that way me and uh actually my wife girlfriend at the time and a couple friends we went down to margaret river 
and checked out the wineries, the surfing and stuff like that down there. And then we drove up. We went swimming with the whale sharks up in Nigaloo Bay, I think it's called. Wow. And and then I got dropped off. They call them overlanders and they're gas stations in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I was dropped off there so that I could catch a greyhound coming up. They dropped me off probably around two o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, I went into the gas station and, you know, sat down and uh, got some food, was hanging out, knew I'd uh, hang out there for quite a while. Like their bus was going to be picking me up at four o'clock in the morning. And I had just assumed that it was a 24 hour facility, right? So right. probably around seven o'clock at night, the, uh, the staff comes up and they're like, okay, you got to wait outside. No, and, in the uh, middle of nowhere. In the middle of nowhere. Um, <laughs> and I kind of just, I'm packing up my bags and I look behind me and there's like a poster the size of the entire back wall. And it says poisonous snakes of Western Australia. So I'm, I grab my backpack and uh, I go out and sit on a picnic bench for the next eight hours or, or so and pitch black, you know. Um, wow, elevated as high as possible. Oh, I just, yeah, I wasn't sitting anywhere near the ground. I didn't want to go. And it was like, you couldn't... Uh, that's Relax, scary because right? like snakes can climb very well. Yeah. I, I mean, I was trying not <laughs> to heard. think about it. Right. I was trying not to think about it. But, you know, at the same time, I was sitting there bored out of my skull right. and was like, OK, I'll just listen to some music. And then it was just like every once in a while, I'll be pulling the earphone off and just be like, OK, what's going listen on? Listen for some rattling. Yeah, exactly. Some bass in the background. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was like my introduction to Western Australia. And then. Wow. So. It seems to me like that's quite a challenge to promote tourism to such a remote area. So how was that? How was that challenge? Well, I didn't actually like my job was to just develop the product on the ground mm. and I left the marketing to the eco resort. And frankly, these resorts are pretty good at what they do. I mean, there's an appeal to being able to go into the middle of nowhere and stay at one of these resorts, right? How much of a resort is it? Is this like glamping? It was glamping before glamping. The actual developer, he had four proper suites that mm. were polished, premium yeah. located. Villa, villa-like. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then he had these luxury tents, which were like galvanized steel and reinforced canvas. Mm. And uh, part of the reason is because they get cyclones that go through. And so they're able to just pull those down. You know, the wind rips through the whole place and they don't actually have to uh, you know, worry about damaging the actual tents itself. So wow. it's a pretty premium guest that comes up to those places. Mm. Um, and, you know, there was definitely conflicts as I was kind of going through this. I'm like, OK, this guy got a pretty good deal on this land. I mean, it's beautiful up there. If you've ever seen any pictures of the Kimberley region, that's what the area is called. Okay. Uh, the Kimberley region in Australia, it's like beautiful turquoise waters, white sand beaches and that like really rusty red soil, which Australia is famous for. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, that's the Kimberley region up there. Let's see. It's Probably one of the last. Whoa. All right. We are Googling Kimberley region, Australia, and then you click on images to see how. Wow. Look at that. So you can actually probably if you Google uh, Eco Beach Resort, I think it's owned by a franchise now, maybe Weston or uh, Radisson or something like that. Yeah, this place is was pretty awesome. Whoa. This is it. Eco yeah. Beach Retreat. Yeah, maybe. Yeah in Broome, yep. Australia. Wow, that is beautiful. So it was pretty amazing. Yeah. And we were there like right on the, I guess, on the ground floor of things because they didn't have any tours or any kind of experiences available. They had just opened up and what they were doing was mostly doing like fishing charters. So we developed a self-guided nature walk. We developed four or five different cultural experiences. So, mm. um, and then train the guides on, you know, how to take ownership of that experience. So, you know, a big mm. challenge with indigenous tourism is that from both sides, there's 
a feeling of being taken advantage of and, of you know, commodifying a culture and selling it. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, we just tried to make sure that they knew that they were the owners of this knowledge and this experience and that they can share what they want. They're empowered to make those decisions on what they feel comfortable sharing or not. Mm. What were some of those cultural offerings? Um, stories mm. around the land, around you know, origin stories, you know, even something as simple as uh, welcome to country. So that's a big kind of promotional tool that Tourism Australia uses, you know, this idea of welcome to country, that you're welcome here. Mm. And um, it's double sided. So the guide feels like there's an onus for them to kind of do that because it's what's expected. And the guest feels like this is something that, you know, where is this welcome to country? But, right. you know. How welcome are you uh, mm. to the country is a, is a question that we kind of talked about was, okay, you know, this is your land. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, do you feel like you want to present all of it or do you want to uh, welcome these people? How do you want to welcome them? Mm. Uh, and so we kind of went through that through discussions over beers and mm -hmm. around campfires and stuff like that about what they felt was, you know, acceptable mm. and how much did they want to push that boundary? Because of course, you know, you don't want to make your guests feel uncomfortable, but at the same time, it's a little bit more popular term now, but these transformative experiences through tourism, what we are trying to do is saying, hey, like let's get people just a little bit uncomfortable mm. so that they kind of recognize that it's just not on autopilot, that they're going through this experience, right? That, hey, mm. reflect on where you came from, reflect on what these individuals were going through and at least come out of this experience recognizing that maybe you learned something new or it's not as you first thought mm. um, in terms of, you know, what the country and its cultural background is presented as. Mm. Yeah, I think it's very difficult to kind of reconcile those competing imperatives, right? And I suspect that that might be getting harder nowadays with the internet and so-called woke culture and mm. other kind of things. You know, people from every angle have some kind of opinion or input. Anything and everything can be controversial these days. So, oh, for sure. For yeah, sure. I'm guessing that's quite difficult to reconcile those two things. Yeah, I think the tourism industry has definitely changed. I think there's a sense, I, I don't know, we'll see what happens as we kind of fully recover from COVID-19. Obviously, COVID mm. allowed the industry to kind of press pause on things. So you're seeing some shifts away from just like the quantity perspective versus the quality perspective and how you're developing tourism. So, mm. um, and, and also this cultural dynamic that says, okay, you're not just a tourist in this place. Like you're truly a visitor. And I, I guess for most people that might not necessarily seem like different concepts, but you know, it's a privilege to really travel the world and be able to connect with other cultures. And I th think, you know, there's going to be a shift towards people approaching those experiences a little bit differently. So whether they call something out during a tour or not, mm -hmm. um, what mm -hmm. we we're trying to do is just build resilience with these guides and letting them know that you can present this concept and your cultural background in any way that you want to, mm -hmm. um, not based on what the guest is expecting, because that's, you know, that's inauthentic in terms of what you're trying to, mm -hmm. to, to sell. And to be honest, like, you know, there's more value, I think, in a, a tour guide or a local community who's sharing experience or welcoming people into their community to be able to say, hey, it's not how you expected it. It's a little bit different than that. And, you know, we'll come out of this as a guest a little bit richer and a little bit more intelligent in terms of just knowing the perspectives of other people. And that's mm. really what tourism is all about, right? I mean, 100%. we, we kind of got lost in, in it all. I think the tourism industry was looking at volume, was looking at, you know, those are the metrics that a lot of destinations use, right? They're looking at visitor numbers. Of course. Um, and that's not necessarily the end game. I mean, it should be receipts, mm -hmm. but it's also the stories that we can tell and the connections that we can make. And that's a big thing for Taiwan specifically, you know, mm. uh, 
It's going to be interesting to see how we come out of COVID. I mean, we're still, the borders are still closed. It's September almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said they're going to be opening the borders soon. Who knows? They always say that. But, yeah, yeah. But it's going to happen. I think it's definitely, it's definitely a, a missed opportunity. I mean, I think a lot of that sheen that was Taiwan during the COVID pandemic has exactly. worn off a little bit. They're going to come out of this and they're going to realize, oh, this was a missed opportunity. And Hugely, yeah. You know, you know that they're making decisions increasingly for mm, political reasons of course yeah, yeah. but uh you know hopefully we can get out to the other side of it because i think tourism is a big soft power play for taiwan and, and mm. just getting people to know that hey it's a vibrant culture there's it's a safe destination mm. it's a place where you can learn probably about traditional Chinese culture more than you can if you go to China. And uh, I might get in trouble for saying that. I don't know. Maybe not, but no. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) My my feeling is, you know, my feeling is that could be a strong proposition for Taiwan is that it it really is a place where you can come see the pilgrimages. You can go to the temples. There's, you know, longstanding traditions and stories about the Chinese culture here that have perhaps gone missing uh, in in China. And I was speaking with a, a guy who runs it's the Chinese Outbound Tourism Research Institute and we were talking about the same issue about the fact that that's Taiwan's strong suit I mean Mm. there's there's the grand attractions and natural experiences you can have in China Mm -hmm. Um, but if you're looking for a cultural experience you know I think Mm. Taiwan's where it's at when it comes to Chinese culture so why did you you were working here teaching English for three years and then you said you wanted to have a change of pace and then go down to Australia why did you major in tourism management tourism management yeah yeah what was kind of the impetus or reasoning behind that at that time so I did my bachelor in tourism management as well and then I thought okay Mm. uh, I might go down the pathway of doing a PhD Okay. Um, we'll get back to that in a bit. Oh, there's um, a PhD story as well. Yeah, there's a PhD story. Okay. Um, <laughs> so yeah, then when I was in Australia, I wrapped up that project. I had connected with the director of the program enough, and he had suggested that I could go and do some tourism economic impact studies in Latvia. Mm. So they had an exchange program in Estonia, and he had been doing economic impacts on international students for a number of years in Tallinn, Estonia. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to do similar studies in the Baltic states, so in Lithuania, in Latvia. And if anyone's not familiar, the Baltic Sea, which on the southern coastline is Denmark, Germany, and Poland. And mm. on, the, or on the eastern shoreline is Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, and parts of Russia, I guess. And then the Nordic countries to the north. So yeah, I was invited to go out there, and I spent mm. a semester out there in Riga, Latvia. Okay. And nice. uh, yeah, I mean, it was a, it's an interesting place for sure. I mean, oh. I'd never been out that way before, but coming from sunny, bubbly Australia, you know, I walked into the first coffee shop, you know, being like, hey, you know, the, thinking that this is my local for a little bit. And right. I was like, <laughs> just went in there, you know, said I wanted a latte. Hey, what's going on? What's good? You know, where are the events? Where's the music at? And uh, mm. within like two seconds, the guy's just face went stone. Uh, uh, stone cold. Stone cold. And I was yeah. just like, uh, okay, uh, maybe I got this wrong. And I, I think a lot of that has to do with the culture there. Huh. You know, in Latvia, I mean, they were under two separate oppressors, I would say. Right. So the first stint was with the Nazis, mm. Nazi Germany during World War II. And then obviously when the Red Army invaded or reclaimed some of that land they, when they receded they kept ownership of that so these mm. were some of the block states mm-hmm. um and that's pretty recent too right like 1992 mm-hmm. yeah 
So I think that's just embedded in the culture. It's like, don't be outward, don't be extroverted, you know, keep to yourself. Mm. Um, and I think once you break through with local Latvians, that changes. But uh, that was my first experience was trying to go get a coffee and was- Wow, met with some stoicism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was funny. And that's yeah. interesting because you mentioned about 1992 and I believe that's when Taiwan also exited their long martial law stint as well. Yep. So yeah, yeah. And, like and even now, right. history. Yeah, absolutely. And even mm. that's right. And uh, even now, I would say that there's uh, remnants of that psychological presence of, a, of martial law mm. here in Taiwan, and whether yes. that's in outdoor recreation, or whether that's in just day to day engagement with other locals, you definitely feel that sometimes, but not too much. So this was a kind of special project, right? The Lafayette thing. Yeah. Um, and then you went back and graduated after you graduated. What happened next? So from Latvia, I went and lived in London, worked for an ad agency. Uh, they call them representation firms. So this would be a local firm that represents foreign tourism destinations in this source market. So the UK and, and Ireland is obviously one of the largest travel markets or used to be around the globe. So we represented clients like Las Vegas, New York, Kenya, Tourism Queensland. So major, major national tourism boards and regional tourism boards. Mm. And so that was fun. I mean, I got a good, uh, that was kind of my first uh, experience in internet marketing and you know working on integrated marketing plans and stuff like that hmm. so that whole period i was uh, having a long distance relationship with my wife girlfriend hmm. at the time and we moved to canada and hmm. got married and uh had two kids lived in toronto we were there for a little bit i skipped jobs a couple times did a couple hmm. different things and that brought us to 2018. okay so 2018 you are back in taipei did you notice some big changes from being away for how many years was that? Yeah, so we arrived August 2019. And uh, yeah, some of the big changes that I really felt, I mean, Taipei has become a much better place to live. I mean, I think the food is amazing, always has been, but it's a little bit more diversified now. So you can really go out and get some top notch international dishes if you do want to go and get that. Mm -hmm. uh, the transit systems, world class. I think at the time there was the red line, parts of the blue line and the brown line. Wow. Really? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's extensive now and you can mm. get anywhere in the city out to the airport and throughout New Taipei City, which is amazing. But I think just like I've really noticed that the city has done a really good job at uh, reusing industrial spaces, making them a lot more kind of public or using them for cultural events. I think they refer to it as uh, adaptive reuse. So they'll find an old factory and they'll open it up to co-working spaces mm -hmm. and event spaces and stuff like that. So. Um, 2019, we moved here, two little kids, new school, new house. We just started a business. I started new work. So what we weren't able to get out as much as we kind of hoped to, mm. um, but we saw some amazing music shows and it really kind of resonated with me about how livable the city is now. Mm. Um, that would probably be the biggest change. Mm. I think it's a major cultural destination for a lot of people. And, you know, I hope when the borders open up again, they'll start getting international acts and international art shows mm -hmm. and things like that. Like that's obviously what really makes a city come alive festivals that kind yeah of thing. they just had the s2o but it go? was i didn't go i was invited but i heard it turned into quite a debacle did it yeah i bet yeah i think uh, a lot of these big stars especially from south korea weren't able to make it because of some uh, squabble allegedly between the organizers of s2o and and some government agencies apparently yeah i had seen something come across the ticker uh about the south korean 
stars that, mm. that had some trouble getting in. I think pretty much every international DJ wasn't able to get in. No way. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. There's quite a bit of news about it. Wow. Yeah. Mm. It's amb- I mean, it was ambitious, you know, when mm-hmm. you start to look at the lineup, you know, at this point in my life, I'm not paying as much attention to it. Mm. Um, but I looked at that and was thinking, oh, this is weird. Like, nobody can come into the country. How are they going to pull this off? Right. But, uh, that's too bad. I mean, I think, I think it was 2019. No, 2020. They mm-hmm. held it. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Yeah. And uh, again, it, w- it was this, one of these like uh, beacons of hope for the globe, right? You could see we were the only ones holding, you know, international festivals yes. at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't been, but I like to go. Mm, exactly. Get a little wet. Yeah. 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 Have you been? No, I haven't. I've been to quite a few festivals back in the States, yeah. uh, similar festivals, but no, I haven't. I think I haven't been to one in Asia at all. So it is on the bucket list. It's yeah. on the checklist. Yeah. Yeah. As soon I'm as I can get, go. as soon as I can get a babysitter, I'm out. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. Priorities. Yeah. Um, so we are here in Taiwan now, and now we can get to Park Bus. Mm. So what is kind of the origin story of Park Bus and how that came about? So pandemic hit January 2020. February passed by a lot of fear, concern. You know, a lot of the messages that I was hearing were around stay indoors, don't go outside. You know, I've always found nature healing to me and I've kind of made those connections. I reached out to somebody who, uh, Ryan Heverin, who was one of the co-founders of Park Bus as well, myself and Michael Chen, we all sat down and we were talking about this opportunity to launch something that would get more people outdoors. So three steps back, when I lived in Toronto, just before we left, uh, I was working for a nonprofit organization that was focusing on sustainable tourism and transportation solutions. Hmm. Um, so I worked on, I was a project manager for a bicycle tourism project in Ontario, Canada, hmm. and we certified tourism businesses to be bicycle friendly. So we were working on that and we brought on a project called Park Bus run by these uh, Alex and Boris. Now they live in BC in Toronto and they had been running that for probably a couple of years now and had great success in in bringing this project along. Park Bus in Canada essentially is the same thing in Taiwan, which is it's a uh, transportation solution that connects people who are living in cities to parks, whether Mm. they have a car and don't want to use it, whether they don't want to drive that far, or whether they don't have a car and can't access some of these places. So that was the the basis of it in uh, in Canada, and they've been running it now for about 10 years. And now we're just about to leave. We go out for a beer, we're chatting around, you know, over the over a couple of drinks and we just kind of popped around the idea. I said, hey, if this ever pops up and the opportunity comes around in Taiwan, would you guys be open to me launching a, a, a version of this project in Taiwan? They said, yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Um, had some stipulations to it. But mm-hmm. uh, so when this noise was popping off about don't go outside, don't go outdoors, you know, all mm-hmm. this stuff, I just thought, okay, this might be the good time to do it. So. We got together, we chatted about it, and we ran the pilot April 2020. So right in the wow. middle of the pandemic. That's like right at the beginning. Yeah. 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 So it was kind of neat because we connected back to Canada and we were able to share some procedures that we used to make sure that our guests were safe. And it kind of became this little communication channel between government agencies who run protected areas in Canada. So this would be like Parks Canada or Mm -hmm. uh, provincially Ontario Parks or BC, British Columbia Parks. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they were curious about, because that's where Park Bus does a lot of their business. They go to provincial parks and national parks in Canada. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to connect and make a, a communication between those stakeholders as well. And so 
it was nice because at the time everyone was concerned, right? The tourism industry had been shut down in Canada mm. as well as the rest of the globe. And so it was just these little pieces saying, hey, you know what? It's not as, I mean, it turned out to be quite dangerous in terms of, but at the same time, there, there are ways around that we can make our guests safe. And so mm-hmm. we implemented waivers that also requested the guests to make declarations of whether they had been traveling overseas or had come in contact with anybody from COVID. I mean, this wasn't new, but it was just some kind of processes that we can put in place that allowed us to start to get this going off. So mm. we ran our first trip, yeah, April, 2020. Wow, yeah. where was that first trip? Uh, Man Yuan in uh, National Forest in, uh, I think it's Sancha. In, in Sancha, really? Yeah. yeah. In basically Shinbei, I mean, New y- Taipei City? New Taipei City, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we ran one out there. It was kind of family friendly. We had a couple families that we could reach out to and uh, encourage them to come on it, give us some feedback. And then, yeah, from there, we just started to explore different areas. And now we have 25 different destinations that we go to. Okay. Yeah, not all at once. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. On one bus ride. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> the, the premise of park buses, we just tried to break the mold of what a traditional Taiwanese tour was. Mm. Um, it's actually quite common in North America to just be able to have access to some of these places and then go experience it at your own own pace. Mm. Uh, but in Taiwan, it's a little bit different. Got to you know, follow the flag. Follow the flag, follow <laughs> the tulip, um, <laughs> follow the person that's on the megaphone. And, and that's even for outdoor experiences too, right? Like mm. they'll bring megaphones out into these national forests and be chirping you know at all their guests and that's funny yeah and i'm just you know it rubs me the wrong way for sure Mm -hmm. uh in terms of you know you're going into (laughs) nature and you're hearing somebody talk about whatever it is uh you know sometimes you just want to go in there and be in silence so of course yeah so we we have a licensed guide we work with the licensed travel agent we fully insure all the guests and the guests on the bus but what we do is we drop people off at one location and pick them up at the next Mm. Uh, if it's the kind of end-to-end trail and if it's at a national forest and there's a bunch of things to do in that place we drop them off at a parking lot and say hey you got to be back here at four o'clock and then people can go and do whatever they want you can walk in groups it's a great opportunity to meet other people um and we've had some great friendships build out of that so Right. Yeah. That's the kind of premise behind it. It's pretty simple. And, you know, sometimes when we're either talking with tourism industry people here or other people, they're like, well, why don't you have a lunch or why don't you go to the souvenir shop or whatever it might be? And we're like, no, like that's not that's it. That's not know? what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. There's other people who, who can do that. Right. How difficult do you find that, you know, educating or explaining this kind of what seems to be a, a new or foreign concept? Yeah. I mean, it's market development for sure. I think there's a younger generation and an expat community who connects with that idea because I think that's just becoming more and more common in the Taiwanese community in terms of mm. that's a way to travel. We have had people who were like less than a year and I think over 80 years old. So we have a range of people who come out on these trips. Mm. And for the older Taiwanese, uh, they're kind of waiting for the guide to direct them into a place and usually what i'll do if i'm on the trip or if one of our founders is on the trip like we'll connect with those people and just Mm. kind of let them know that hey like let's walk together we can do that you know right Um, you can walk with the guide if you want to so there is a guide who's walking on these routes and if you want to have a little bit more structure or information then they're there to chat with you about it Mm. um but every time I talk with somebody in the industry about the idea around park bus, you know, you can see a light pop mm. off and sort of, you know, say, oh, okay, that makes sense. Like, uh, I, I, I never know, thought about that. Never thought about that. The mm. one thing in the back of their head, and, and Taiwan is a pretty cautious culture, exactly. is like, 
like what's the liability here like you it's know very risk averse yeah it totally is absolutely mm-hmm. and that permeates not just into running tours but into a whole bunch of things Everything, including education as well yes yeah. definitely yeah so um i think to answer your question i think it's it's been a bit of a slog but mm. we're kind of uh, starting to get out, out to the other side and what we were really focusing on now is, is looking at building the community behind it because people get the idea that transportation is one thing or the other but you know people are looking for opportunities to connect with uh, people, especially during COVID, where there was periods of time, at least in Taiwan, uh, limited, but there were periods of time where people were locked inside, right? Mm. So there's, I think there's a, people are looking to to make those better connections with people mm. again. Yeah, the policy in Taiwan also vacillated a bit, right? I mean, there was a period where it was quite safe, but then I think maybe the next year in 2021, there was kind of a alert, right? And then a somewhat of a pullback or a lockdown as well, where they were instituting kind of stronger laws in terms of mask wearing and other kind of things. Did that have an impact on the operations? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, Both times, actually. So it kind of happened around the same time, April or May, 2021 and then right. 2022 both those times we were kind of ramping up you know after chinese new year we can start to add more tours and we we're just kind of you know pulling up our socks in terms of how we were going to engage and market with people mm. both times that kicked us in the teeth and we just mm. had to press pause on that but the one thing about park bus which we're always pretty happy about is that it's you know it's a low capital project right we, mm. we don't we don't mm. own the buses we just rent them charter them yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. so it's um you know we have guides and policy around tour guiding in Taiwan is that they're independent contractors. So it's not like we have employees. So mm. as the founders, we were able to kind of press pause on it and then mm. get back to everything else that we're doing. So Park Bus is still not a full-time job for mm-hmm. any one of us. Mm. Um, and and that's okay because we can, you know, we can do it remotely if we're not on the tours, we can look at other projects that we want to work on. And I mean, it's a, it's a nice side project. Mm. Um, it, has allowed me to get out to some amazing places in Taiwan, mm-hmm. um, allowed me to connect with some really amazing people mm. and really start a career in Taiwan within the tourism industry because that is a challenge in Taiwan where people come here and they struggle to carve out a career. Uh, that would be another big change that I noticed actually in 2005 mm. to 2008, that was very, very difficult. Mm. Now with other visas, and uh, just a little bit more of an internationalized economy that there's a lot of opportunities now for foreigners to to carve out their own careers or start businesses and things like that. I guess it was quite rudimentary in 2005, 2008. Yeah, I knew some buddies that were doing it, like they were mm. starting their own consulting companies and uh, people who were working in manufacturing. And I mean, e-commerce wasn't a thing, but mm. you know, now there's a lot more opportunity to, mm. to do a variety of different things. Right. Um, and I think also I found I think a lot of foreigners come here now, they really commit to learning the language mm. and this opens a ton of doors in terms of employment opportunities as well. Exactly. Yeah. So what percent of the Park Bus clients' customers are Taiwanese and what percent are expats, foreigners, or non-Taiwanese? Yeah, so 40% are Taiwanese. The business and the project can't be sustainable without the Taiwanese market mm-hmm. uh, getting into it. And that's probably harder uh, nut to crack in terms of the proposition of you still have to pay money to go on the bus, but mm-hmm. you don't get any of the additional services, right? And so that's probably the harder part of it. You were talking about how, you know, how do we you know, educate a market on, on what this proposition is. You know, to be honest, food, especially if you go to like a traditional Taiwanese restaurant, mm. food's not a big overhead, you know, for a tour, right? It's, it's a couple right. hundred bucks because you can share dishes and things like that. So maybe people are looking for that they would happily pay 
$200 or whatever extra more it would be so that they could get, you know, like a eight dish meal with friends kind of thing. But, Mm. um, we just want to stay away from that. We, what we want to do is just make sure that people get out and spend as much time as they possibly can outdoors. So you guys drop them off and then you pick them up at a uh, same or similar location afterwards. Yeah. So two destinations that we go to, Manue Yuan, as mentioned before, mm-hmm. and Dong Yansan. Uh, Dong Yansan is kind of on the other uh, side of a mountain range. And mm-hmm. there's a trail that connects the two of them. So for those two national forests, if we go to them, we drop people off at the parking lot and say, hey, come back to the bus at this location at four o'clock or at mm-hmm. 3.30, whatever it might be. Right. Um, but there's also a trail that connects those two national parks. So one of our other tours is we drop people off at Dong Yansan mm. and we tell people where we're gonna pick them up in Manueyuan and they hike 17 kilometers to the oh. other side. Okay, so that was actually, interestingly, my next question, which is, has anyone ever gotten lost or has anyone not made it to the pickup spot? I can imagine that happening, but. Has that ever occurred? Uh, no, no, okay. we, uh, we haven't left anybody in the park, uh, <laughs> thankfully yet. There's been a couple of times where we've had to, um, so for example, that trip actually, it's called the Dongmen Trail mm. and it's 17 kilometers. The last three kilometers or so uh, is all downhill and you're out of uh, cell reception. Mm. Um, so usually what we do is we have somebody walking sweep and somebody walking lead, especially mm. on some of these longer trips. And so that you know, you can at least monitor how the pace that people are walking. On this trip, there was an individual who was a little bit slower and I ended up having to walk back up three kilometers and then walking back down with them for three kilometers. Mm. Uh, but we got home uh, well and I uh, connected with that person the next day and they were feeling okay. And uh, yeah, they were thankful that we were able to offer that. So, mm. you know, we try our best to, we don't want people who don't feel comfortable hiking longer distances, but for those types of trips, which require a moderate level of fitness that Mm. we ask them to make sure that, you know what you're getting into. Right, exactly. Disclaimers are important. Exactly, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah. Uh, Speaking to that, what is the most difficult of the park bus offerings, which requires, you know, kind of some strength, stamina, skills, experience? Um, that trail is, it's not that it's technical by Mm. any means. I think it's just that the last three kilometers you're walking down steps, like most of the time it's walking down steps and they're not huge and they're not stone. They're they're, like, it's beautiful in there, Mm. but it's after walking 12 kilometers that you have to then start hammering your knees every step of the way. So I think people find that one a little bit tough if they're not kind of at a moderate fitness level. Mm. Uh, we do an amazing hike in uh, San National Forest, mm. which is out of Taichung. Mm-hmm. And there's a trail that starts right at the ticket booth and it goes about 17 kilometers. It parallels the park road that drives up to the uh, visitor center and then pops out just up the road from the visitor center. And so we drop groups off there and then we hike all the way up to the visitor center where there's some food and you can kind of check out the exhibits and stuff like that. Mm. And that trail, again, it's not technical. None of these, none of what we do at Park Bus is like technical high mountain hiking, mm-hmm. um, which people have to be really prepared for, right? Um, of course. So that one's just long. They're just long. But I mean, mm. if you're, if you have a moderate level of fitness, it's, it's an amazing day out for mm-hmm. sure. So that one, if anyone's been up to Dash Sign, they'll know it's a, uh, you're probably at about 28 to 2,900 meters. So mm. you're, you're getting up there. It's pretty high, yeah. Yeah, you're getting up there. I hope I got that number right. Mm. Maybe it's 27, 2,700. Okay. We'll say 2,700. All right, 27, let's <laughs> yeah, go with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's it's up there. So you're also at an elevation, the last little bit of that hike, you're starting to hike, the elevation gains are a little bit steeper, but you know, everybody who walks out of that forest is a changed person, I think. You just, mm. it's mystical, it's, 
you know, there's a sense of energy in there that is healing. Hmm. What is the shortest trip? Well, so for some of those destinations where we drop people off at one location, you can walk out the bus and go find a bench and sit and read a book if you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have short hikes, they've got longer ones. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one example, it would be Taiping San, which is another national forest out in Elan County on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. That uh, national forest is renowned for these old trestles, train mm-hmm. trestle bridges that have okay. been retained, but no longer in use. These were old From mining, logging, logging. Okay. Yeah. yeah logging. So oh. During the Japanese occupation, Taiwan was logged significantly, mm-hmm. and they built these train networks uh, that would allow them to extract some of these larger pieces of timber out of there. And so they've mm. kept the train. It's really cool. I don't know if you've ever seen it before. No, I haven't. Are they in operation, the trains? or no? Uh, well, in Taiping San, people go there to look at these old mossy trestles, but there is a train there called the Bongbong train. You have to pay additional uh, fee to get in, onto it, and it's about a 20-minute train ride that hugs the edge of the mountain and then takes you out to this other area of the park where they've got about, I'd say, maybe a couple kilometers of trails to hike around in. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's it's spectacular. Yeah, for sure. So that's a popular trip as well. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And actually that trip in Taiping San, there's another 40, you can take another 40 minute drive up the mountain to this Mm. place called Tuifang Lake. And that's now been designated, I think, as the first silent trail in the world. Whoa. Um, And it's... Not that quiet, actually, but uh, (laughs) uh, that's funny. No, um, I think what they're trying to do is they're educating the staff on how to educate the guest Mm. about how to walk in those places appropriately. And so Mm. I think that's actually a task that is needed in Taiwan because, you know, some people will be jamming out to some tunes as Mm. they go through. And, uh, you know, it's not for everybody, right? They're doing that. Like, just put on a pair of earbuds and listen to your music by yourself. Then it could be silent for everybody else. Right. So the government designates it as a silent trail so that they kind of reduce or preclude people from kind of playing that loud music. Uh, I'm not sure, actually, on the policy behind Mm. it. I don't I think it was a third party that designated that uh, trail as the first silent trail in Taiwan. Mm. Yamingsen National Park, which is just a stone's throw from Taipei City. Mm -hmm. It's in Taipei City. Right. was it's the de- only national park in the world located in a capital, capital yeah, or I think something so. like this? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it was it was recently designated as a, maybe the first silent national park oh. uh, in the world. We have a recurrent theme here. Yeah. There's a lot of silence. Yeah. And mm. I think it's amazing. I mean, I think, you know, one thing that I've definitely noticed as I've kind of lived a different life than I did in 2005 when I was here, mm. I, I've definitely noticed that the Taiwanese are pretty passionate about the outdoors. Maybe this has kind of evolved over the last couple of years because of COVID and we didn't have anywhere to go, but mm. so many more people on the trails now, which, you know, has its pros and cons. Mm-hmm. If you're, you know, selfishly, you're like, I'd <laughs> love to go here by myself. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, it does mean that a lot more people are connecting to nature. And mm. um, I think that bodes well for hopefully future environmental policies and, you know, a way that the culture approaches environmental issues moving forward. This might take some time, but Mm. I see a lot of kids on the trails and I think that's going to, you know, hopefully start to uh, permeate communities and individuals and families about, you know, how to take care of this. I mean, it still blows my mind some of the things I see happening here in in terms of environmental situations and garbage and litter. Mm. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes you just have to bite your lip and yeah. What are some of those things? I mean, because I know there's a lot of beach cleanups 
all the time and they seem to be recurring, you know, every month because trash just accumulates yeah. quite easily. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a lot has a lot to do with the the currents in terms of mm-hmm. where they're pulling some of this trash from. It's not to say that part or maybe majority of it originates in Taiwan, but I live up in Linko. It's kind of up on a hilltop just outside of Taipei in New Taipei City. I live on the the west side of town and I ride my bike quite a bit, a road bike. And, you know, there's these amazing uh, small little country roads. Mm. By the way, if anyone's a cyclist, Taiwan is a cyclist dream. It's probably one of the best places to ride a bike uh, mm. in the world. So when I do ride these roads, sometimes well, I go down a lot faster than I come up typically. Mm. Um, <laughs> but when I'm riding up, you're able to kind of peer off to the sides as you're going up these roads. Mm. And these are kind of watershed areas, right? These are where creeks kind of converge and, and rain connect and meets these larger streams in the area. And they're just there's just garbage bags. People just throw mm. garbage bags, they throw sofas, they throw like air conditioners, they throw anything they can. Mm. And it, it, I don't understand it because I think the, the waste management system here is pretty good. Exactly. But I, I, it blows my mind. And I'm not talking about like a little gar- plastic bag with like your McDonald's in it. I'm talking right. about massive garbage bags. Yeah, like just massive bags. And so huh. that stuff floats down the stream and out into the oceans. Mm. But you know, it, yeah, it's unfortunate because like we live actually quite close to Linko uh, Linko River. Mm-hmm. And I remember one of the first weeks I was down there and we were just kind of cruising around with the family. And I was like, oh, I can't wait to take the kids here. You know, like little creek looking under rocks for crayfish and fishing mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And they're like, no, don't go anywhere near that. <laughs> oh, it's so sad, right? Yeah, yeah it is for sure. That's a, that's a great childhood memory for many, just kind of, yeah, fishing for crawfish and playing around in the water, but yeah. 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 I mean, I think a kid needs to get dirty. Yeah. I think it's a healthy, not only just for like, you know, just becoming bacteria. resilient. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Becoming Good resilient bacteria. to bacteria and stuff yeah. like that, but also just like, you know, playing on a river, you learn what happens upstream impacts you and what you do impacts somebody downstream. So, you know, I think those mm-hmm. were some lessons that I've always tried to teach my kids and, you know, you can connect with the kid. Mm. from that sim- simplistic model right um mm-hmm. about not just rivers and how they operate but that this the whole area. ecosystem and how everything connects yeah. as well yeah yeah it's very important for especially kids i think to kind of immerse themselves in that from a young age yeah i'm not so i'm not as confident that we'll change you know that 50 to 75 year old Taiwanese on environmental issues, but I'm pretty confident on the Taiwanese youth that they're starting to plug into it and understand mm-hmm. that like we can't just keep producing garbage on this island, you know, we got to take care of this place. So I know there's not much land anyways. No. So yeah, yeah, got to yeah. keep it safe and clean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So to answer your question, mm. uh, some of the parks have shorter trails. Mm. Um, some of them have longer What's the longest ones? one i would say probably that dash okay. is the is the longest trail but again like you know you can hike the equivalent number of kilometers at some of these places if you just do all the trails mm. so it depends on, on what you want to do and how you want to do it like we do get people who come and they have picnics mm. um we had a trip last weekend to awanda in nanto county out mm. of we departed from taijong high-speed station and uh, husband and wife, two kids, and mother and mother-in-law. Mm. And they just brought a picnic and they walked, I think maybe a couple kilometers. They went to the stream, the kids were kind of playing around in the stream. And then they went to a place where they were able to have a picnic for the rest of the day. And that's that was their day. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So out of all of the park bus destinations and offerings, which one is your personal favorite? I would say Dash Haisan. When we first did the trip, myself, the co-founder, Ryan and we had a good crew. It was just a mystical, magical experience in the trail. And that has always 
connected with me it's some place that i continue to kind of go back mm. when i'm walking the the busy streets of taipei I'll, mm -hmm. i'll think about some of those some of those places particularly dashway sun that's my favorite for sure but you know at the same time we go to places like uh Taoling historic trail which and the taoyuan valley trail which i don't know if you've ever been on that but no. that one like uh walks a ridge line along the east coast and I've heard of it okay yeah, and it's it's awesome there's water buffalo up there but the views are spectacular right looking over turtle island and the coast that's a that's a fun one as well hmm yeah which is the destination that you wish people would know more about that's a good question uh i think that's a good question <laughs> you know one of the one of the downsides of running the trips that we do through park bus is that you know people often ask that like look for a little bit more of a deeper meaning about the place mm. um and it's something that we don't probably do well enough maybe mm. that's like some pre-trip information or things like that like some of these historical trails that would connect the danche and the cavalin districts or prefects these were traditionally used for trading and traveling between ilan county and the mouth of the dance river, river. Mm. and a lot of these places there's a really rich history there. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's some really amazing nonprofit organizations that are doing a great job of storytelling about these places. Mm -hmm. um, that information is not as accessible for people who don't speak Mandarin though. Mm -hmm. um, so, hey, that's something we can do it's better. An opportunity. Yeah, mm -hmm. but I think those historical trails have a lot of interesting kind of histories and heritage around them. Mm, okay. Is the most popular one also Dashuishan? Uh, no, Dashuishan. Okay. I think it's pretty intimidating for people because yeah. they're like, oh, like I got to walk that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I would say the Taoling Historic Trail has been popular. We mm. used to we used to run uh, the trips up to Dongyansan National Forest quite a bit. The challenge with Taiwan is that it is a small place, and the destinations that we go to, people will typically want to go there once. Mm. Right? They can kind of experience the whole thing. And then they can go to another place. So the difference between what we do here and what Park Bus does in Canada is in Canada, the national parks and the, and the provincial parks are massive, right? Mm. Like you can get dropped mm. off at one place and you could probably do 12 or 15 different experiences. There's hundreds of lakes in these places. There's portages and there's kind of designated routes that people can do for, on their canoes or you can do your own one. There's hiking trips, there's mountain biking. There's like so much more to do mm. in these places than one national forest in Taiwan. So mm -hmm. people have kind of gone through the Rolodex of our different experiences and they're always looking for something else. So mm. our, we, when we originally established it, and this is still one of the goals that we want to do, is we want to work with government agencies or county governments to be able to establish these as as uh, kind of like a public service. Mm. Um, we'd be happy to drop the rate if we're able to get some funding from the government and then this would allow us to, to run these a little bit more consistently because you know, public transit networks are pretty expensive for governments to run. Mm -hmm. and, and what we would like to do is be able to establish these things as a public service. That's originally what we want to do. So when we set out, we wanted to launch it as a nonprofit mm. organization. Mm -hmm because we felt it would be a little bit more accepting by the government if to like work with us for for different uh initiatives um, but what we found is actually that there's a greater tendency for government agencies to work with for-profit tour operators because i guess they have a little bit more confidence that things can kind of get executed maybe um it, it's it's pretty eye-opening i think the other hmm. challenge was that besides michael chen who is taiwanese i think people perceive park bus as an international 
a foreign company when really it's a Taiwan registered business. Right. Um, and so maybe that has uh, intimidated the government from wanting to work with us in any mm. way. But, you know, our, our intent is still to work with the county governments to be able to set these things up, maybe even working with like the Taipei City government, even though some of the most of the all the destinations that we go to are not in Taipei City. Mm. I think that's a, a valuable service to start to establish for for governments, right, is saying, hey, you can live in the city. It improves the quality of life for people, especially for those people who don't have access to a car or don't want a car, but live in the city, right? So, mm. you know, there's a lot of families that live in Taipei that have a scooter, maybe, or two scooters, mm -hmm. but they don't have a car. And so how are they getting their kids outdoors? And there's a lot of amazing things. Again, Taipei has really been improved from a quality of life perspective. There's lots of parks, there's very accessible hiking trails in Taipei, but to get outside that, and you know, as taxpayers, they fund these protected areas, mm -hmm. these national forests and national parks through their tax dollars, but they don't get a chance to access these places because they don't have transportation to do so. Hmm. So that's another kind of policy. Event. Yeah, so what are those challenges? Why do you think there's a seeming trepidation from the government to get involved with such an initiative as Park Bus? Uh, what do you think are these kind of big obstacles and reasons? Or maybe on the other hand, what do you think or maybe wish that the government would kind of step up and do more in this regard? Is the Taiwan Tourism Bureau one of your subscribers? No, <laughs> then, exactly. no. They, no. they are well, listening, listening now. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I, you know, as many people who have probably listened to my story before or have chatted with me about it, it's hard not to kind of get into like a venting session about, you know, some of the challenges in the tourism industry here. So the, let's vent. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think the, I think one of the issues is a lot of the government agencies, like from the tourism perspective, work on destination marketing rather than destination management. So they don't actually work mm. with their stakeholders. I don't think as closely as maybe many of them want to. There's sort of there's definitely a gap between at least from my perspective, I don't think that necessarily happens with everybody, all the tour operators or people running tours, but there's certainly a gap between like the Taiwan Tourism Bureau. Like it's this entity that nobody can kind of crack, that mm. nobody gets a straight answer from. And a lot of this comes from the risk aversion or the indirect nature of the culture where it's like, you know, you could probably connect with one person in the bureau and they might, you know, really connect with what you're trying to do from an initiative or an experience perspective. But then they've got a superior that they need to report back to and they've got their job description that they, you know, can't veer too far away from and SOP. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, you can't blame them, but it's this nature of the culture that is permeated into a lot of these organizations that make it hard to do something new. And that's mm. not to say that things don't uh, new don't happen, but the other side of the issue is that the regulations for running tours in Taiwan um, are quite stringent. You have to be a licensed travel agency to sell a tour ticket and the capital guarantee that you have to uh, show the government that you can start one of these things is quite high and is a barrier to entry for a lot of small operators. Of course. Um, so, you know, over the couple of years that we've been running this, we were able to connect with a great travel agency and now they're partners in what we do. Mm. Um, they give us full autonomy, being able to run whatever tours we want. They, we tap into their resources and we have their booking engine so we can actually start to uh, run these tours and sell them online, which is great. All of it's in English and in Mandarin. So that's kind of really helped things. And now we're just starting to get to a point where, you know, we've shown that we're committed to running this business that we have, you know, partners who have been established in the industry for a long time. 
And uh, we hope that as things start to open up here, that there's going to be a greater need to connect with experienced providers who are providing something that's a little bit more oriented towards the international community. Mm. Um, so that's what we're hoping for. But just two steps back about those those regulations for travel agencies and, and the barriers that it creates. There's a status quo within the tr- tourism industry for travel agencies who own those licenses. They don't want to change that policy, mm-hmm. but it makes it very difficult. Like, let's say you want to go out and you want to do a walking tour of like, you know, street art in Taipei. You would have to have 1.5 million NT in your pocket. Uh, you would have to hire a licensed tour manager to run your business, which would be about, you know, 60, 50 to $60,000 a month right off the bat. You have to have a designated location. So either you're going to get a virtual office through like a co-working space, or you're going to actually have to lease something yourself. Mm. So you're talking about a lot of upfront capital just to be able to like run a walking tour, mm. which is kind of ridiculous, That's right? crazy, yeah. So there's a lot of gray areas in the tourism industry, which I've come to, to find out about, but- uh, It sounds like protectionism. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. And, I, you know, you look at different industries around Taiwan, and I think that there's a status quo that's established in these industries and these different economic sectors. And, you know, people are pretty comfortable. No one wants to shake the boat because people, exactly. some people are making money and those people who make money are able to, I mean, this is capitalism, so it doesn't really. It, yeah, it, it reminds me of, you know, because I lived out in New York City for over a decade and it reminds me of the New York City taxi medallions. Mm. It's also a, a huge thing where you have to pay up to a million dollars to get a taxi medallion put on your, you know, New York City taxi. So uh, once Uber came in, I mean, it was a huge, huge fight, right? Yeah. The Literally. The units. Yeah, literally. Literally as well, yeah. right? <laughs> I remember this, yeah, street fights um, during taxi protests in Toronto as well during that time. Yeah, I think Taipei also. I just recently read an article about some crazy, violent taxi wars happening <laughs> back in the day, I think in the 1980s or so. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is, yeah, so, I mean, the example would be that it's not just in Taiwan, mm. that there are these established institutions that just don't really want to change things. Right. Um, and. You know, I think that is an emerging trend in tourism where you start to have these destinations like the Taiwan Tourism Bureau um, shifting away from marketing into management. Mm. And, you know, to be honest, that has started to establish in other destinations that were being negatively impacted by tourism. So Barcelona, Iceland, Kyoto, a lot of these places that were overrun by visitors during certain Mm -hmm. periods of the year, the destination agencies that manage these places are saying, hey, like we can't just keep marketing these places because that's not necessarily going to work because not only does it to the detriment of the actual experience for everybody because it's just shoulder to shoulder, the locals are not pleased because Mm -hmm. their lives are being impacted. And so there's a greater shift towards that management saying, hey, let's look at our local community and how we can kind of develop this better Mm -hmm. and for them. Mm-hmm. because that's the main reason why people went there in the first place, right? Because mm-hmm. Barcelona was a cool city to live in. For and, sure. And for I love lo- that city. <laughs> yeah, I've never been, but, uh, mm, it's but amazing. I think with a lot of these places, right? Like, yeah, Iceland too. Yeah. Kyoto as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think that's hopefully going to at some point shift here, but it's slow going and a lot of it is not necessarily just like the trend that's happening globally. It's more, I think, embedded in the culture about people are hesitant to change because of these SOPs and these job descriptions where, you know, people can look at it and they can fall back on it. They can say, hey, you know what? This isn't in my job description, so I can't do it. Exactly. Me bumpa. Yeah, there's mm. a, a really good example, actually. Um, is this time for the PhD story? 
Oh, this is the time. I okay. was just about to ask you about that. <laughs> um, so I'm, I enrolled at uh, National Taiwan University to undertake a PhD. My topic right now, as long as the advisor's on board, is to research the recreation ecology of mountain biking in Taiwan. So mm. re recreation ecology, if you're not familiar with the term, essentially is the social and environmental dimensions of a recreational sport. So because I'm doing it in the School of Forestry and Resource Conservation, that was a little bit more up their speed rather than doing like what's the tourism opportunities, you know, mm, of mm -hmm. this recreational activity. So mm. essentially what I'm doing is looking at critical success factors for the development of mountain biking in Taiwan. And I'm conducting research in other jurisdictions to understand, you know, what, what are some of those KPIs with mm. regards to how mountain biking gets developed, then taking that same model and doing the research here. But one of the biggest issues that we're starting to, to understand is that it's the cultural dimension which becomes the impetus for development of mountain biking in Taiwan or any recreational sport. And part of this is, you know, I can just give you a quick snapshot. So mm. there's a, a great guy who's working on the development of mountain biking in Taiwan. He's a Taiwanese guy. He's working in the bicycle industry for many years. And he's just now starting to reach out to little communities and other agency, government agencies and starting to Say, hey this is a good opportunity so he's creating case studies and so i chat with him every once in a while he's in ireland right now mountain biking mm -hmm. and uh with the story that he told me was he was working with uh Shweba national park government staff member mm. and it was all kind of like it wasn't really it was like at lunchtime they would connect and he would take him out on this forest road and they would ride the mountain bike out there and then, you know, two weeks later, he reconnected with him and said, hey, you know, are you interested in maybe talking about, you know, how we can open this up to mountain bikers? And then over about a year, he was able to actually get that forest road opened up. And so this was one of the first routes that was sanctioned by a government agency for mountain biking. And, you know, they call Taiwan the bicycle kingdom. It's right. a, the leader in bicycle manufacturing. Giant yeah. is based here. Yeah, right. ex exactly. It's exactly. Taiwanese company. Yeah. Yeah. So, and there's amazing cycling here. The government supports it mm -hmm. and there's great terrain for it. You don't really need that much elevation. Like people look at the mountains and say, oh, why isn't there mountain biking here? But you really only need about 300 meters of elevation change to develop a pretty amazing mountain bike trail network. So mm. we have that. Mm. And uh, what we don't have, I think, is the, the commitment from you know, the government to sanction and start to create policy around supporting it. So funding, mm. funding and trail standards and safety standards and mm. education. But there's a, really, there's quite a few people doing some really cool things all over the island um, and it's starting to bubble along. So I'm hoping that it allows me to help contribute to the development of mountain biking by starting to understand what mm. are these success factors that we need to put in place. And that's just like a passion project. I mean, I hope the PhD mm. leads to something else, but uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. Huh, yeah, I feel like there's a lot of good groundwork that has been laid down in that regard anyway, because as we mentioned, Taiwan has very famous kind of cycling routes. There's the, the round the island, you know, cycling okay. route as well. Yeah. Have, have you done that? I haven't done it yet. Okay. No, I was supposed to do it on my 40th, for my 40th birthday, Okay. Uh, but then COVID. Um, stop that in his, his tracks. Blew out so. your candle. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> uh, but I hope to do it at some point. Um, mm. I've got, a, as I mentioned, two kids, and I would like to ride around the island with them. Mm. So i got to stay fit. i got to keep exercising. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Taiwan also has the 100 mountains, the uh, the top 100 mountains, the right? Baiyue. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So how many of those have you done? And is that on your bucket list as well? That is definitely on my bucket list. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I have not done any of them. Okay. A lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, I'm pretty committed to being around for my kids. Mm. Um, so 
Park Bus has taken a few weekends, quite a few weekends uh, right, of my time. From the kids, yeah. yeah. And uh, I would love to. I think I'm capable of doing it, uh, mm. but uh, it, it's on my list. Now you think about it, right? Like you could do one a month and still not be done for nine years, right? Exactly. It's pretty wild. Have you done any? I have not, but I have a old student of mine who I hope to get on here to talk about it because I believe that he will be finishing his hundredth mountain next year. Yeah, I think early next year. I haven't caught up with him recently. I don't know where he's at, but I think he's in the high 90s already. So he's got some crazy stories I, of I crazy bet. mountain people. Yeah, I bet. I mean, I think that should be presented as a bucket list mm-hmm. experience for any mountaineer or anybody who likes to get outdoors. I mean, the challenge is always going to be, can you get here if you live overseas a mm-hmm. hundred different times you know, in your lifetime? But exactly. I think for local residents, it's a great achievement if you're able to do it. There's actually something called the Shao Bayue, which mm. is... Uh, smaller ones smaller ones mm. um i don't know have you heard about that no i haven't so yeah there's uh i think because people realize that those were challenging and right i mean they're not the top most difficult hikes they're just the most representative of the diversity of hiking in taiwan and so the xiao mm. bayou it, it looks at more like suburban or um, smaller hiking trails mm. um so actually what I did last year or starting two years ago with my son was let's uh, make that our goal. So wow. yeah, we've hiked 12 of those. Um, okay. And again, I would be doing more of them, but it's just hard to get out, especially because I'm already away on weekends with Park Bus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what is it about nature for you? Is it about nature? Is it about travel? Is it about adventure? What is it that has led you to this path in life, at least for now? Uh, I think there are many different transformative experiences in our lives, but I think outdoor experiences and living outdoors and camping and hiking and canoeing by far left the greatest imprint on who I am. You know, I grew up camping with my brothers, my dad, my mom. I went to a summer camp from when I was seven until when I was 16. And then I worked there for four years. And, you know, I just think that there's something about connecting with other people, but also to the place that can't be done on the streets. I I think it can, of course, but for me personally, I think that's the greatest way to connect to a place is through nature. So it's character building, it builds resilience in an individual, like sleeping in a tent. Have you slept in a tent before? Yeah. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, that's not the most challenging thing that one can do, but if it's raining and you have you know, you There's just wind blowing. Yeah. And you just canoed or hiked all day long and you're exhausted and it's pouring rain and you're just like, now you're eating cold oatmeal mm. or whatever it is. And, mm-hmm. and you go to bed and, you know, maybe you have a busted ankle or a twist, you know, like there's so many different things that can kind of come out of that. And yeah, it sucks when you're doing it, mm. you know, <laughs> but it's exactly. not enjoyable. Like that, that's not, I should note that it's not right. enjoyable, but what, it, what the, the big issue is, is that, you know, you come out of that and you're, you're a stronger person. Exactly. I mean, those challenges are part of the fun, right? I mean, that's what builds you. For sure. For sure. Mm. And I think that's probably part of it. So yeah, definitely just the healing aspect, the resilience and the character building. And, and I think the fact that it's fun as well, right? You know, it's like a, it's uh, for me, it's great. I mean, I love music, Mm. love food, love going to see cultural events, that kind of thing. Mm. You know, those are big parts of uh, my life, but you know, there's a great outdoors out there to experience. And, you know, I think one of the more important concepts that uh, I was raised on was, as I said, I went to a summer camp and one of the big, you know, the things that you always heard the camp counselor say when you went to a campsite was, leave this place better than you found it, Mm, right? mm -hmm. And I think that those types of philosophies, um, whether it's leave no trace or, or whatever it is at the camp that I went to was 
leave this place better than you found it. That relates to relationships, that relates to, mm-hmm. you know, project that you work on. And that to me relates to the places that we go visit. So mm-hmm. if you can kind of live with that philosophy, then, hey, this place is going to be a pretty good place to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Visit. What about the environment? climate change, how is that impacting the industry globally and then also in Taiwan? Well, it's unpredictable. I think weather is uh, a big issue. A change in weather can change anything Mm. and everything. And when it comes to outdoor experiences, that's certainly the case. I think for the travel industry, operations are being impacted. This is a kind of a general overview of my perspective, but operations are being disrupted. There's a rise in cost for people, whether it's canceling trips or having to put other staff on because of, you know, uh, certain weather issues for the consumer. It's causing a lot of anxiety. Mm. Um, but, you know, I mean, I came down here. I didn't even look at the weather today, to be honest. Mm. I mean, I just mm-hmm. came down and, and my wife, <laughs> I, when I left, my wife was like, hey, you should grab this umbrella. And I'm like, right. nah, 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 you know, whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. So actually, it's interesting you mentioned that because uh, at Origin Wild, which is the parent company of Park Bus Taiwan, Uh, We just submitted an application for a startup accelerator where we're working on what we're calling climate services and tourism. And so uh, we're working with a tech partner and a climate change think tank to sort of combine and aggregate these values and these skill sets to be able to start to develop what we're calling climate service. We're going to take some uh, weather intelligence, we're going to take some technology, and we're going to combine that to be able to offer both for consumers a little bit more uh, better information so that they can make more informed decisions on their on their travel experience. Mm-hmm. And then for the tour operators, we're putting in place some procedures where we can help them schedule, plan and prepare for forecast weather. Mm. And a lot of time tour operators will, you know, they'll look at maybe, you know, what the weather might have been a year ago or two. But the climate think tank that we're working with has historical data from the Central Weather Bureau and the tech partner that we're working at, we're creating a like a, we're calling it weather AI. So it's artificial intelligence. It's a chat bot, a chat engine that's connected to the Central Weather Bureau's database. And we're going to be able to communicate to consumers upon request. So if you want to go to say Hualien, Taidong, and then Pindong, mm. and you have specific locations in there, then you could put that into the chat bot about, I want to go on these days this is the type of thing that I want to do. Mm. And what we're going to do is we're going to, these clients that we have from the business side, travel agencies, hotels, events, uh, any kind of tour operator, we're going to connect them to that request. So somebody's going to punch into the chat bot. They're going to say, I want to go here on these dates. And the chat engine is going to pull a weather report and push that back to the consumer. But at the same time, we're going to take these weather optimized products who have gone through our climate services and then push these products that are relevant inappropriate and safe for that type of weather Hmm. to those consumers. That's kind of what we're working on right now. Oh, wow. Okay. So this is one of your many side hustles. Yeah. 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 This is, it might be a bit bigger than hopefully, man, hopefully it's bigger than the, uh, the others, but yeah, I mean, you're working on a lot of things here. You, you have the park bus and the origin and you know, all these tour things, you have a PhD in process as well with cycling and also this AI or technological chat box as well, right? Mm-hmm. Aggregating data and uh, spitting out that information. Which one of these projects is closest to your heart? Uh, the research on mountain biking. Really? Yeah, okay. yeah the research oh. on mountain biking. Like I said before, I was working bicycle tourism for about five years in Ontario beforehand. I can see the value of it from an economic development perspective. Mm. So, you know, you can only imagine the small rural community in Taiwan that is struggling to keep its youth to have a robust, you know, that's a big issue in Taiwan, right? Brain a lot drain. Of, yeah, a lot of people leave and don't come back. Um, yeah. 
And so some of these communities are dying over time in terms of their aging and they're struggling to develop any kind of um, economic, sustainable economic, right? Yeah. Opportunities. Engine, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, I look at some of these places and I think, oh man, if you just had like a campground mm. and you had a bar and you had a restaurant and you had like a, maybe a shuttle service and you had an amazing trail network, people would travel um, mm. for those types of things. Mm -hmm. um, and it would be kind of a neat little way to start to develop, you know, rural economic development in a way that's trying to encourage people to stay in those communities. So mm. I love mountain biking, you know, the advantage of being able to work, at least research mountain biking is that I can kind of tell my wife that I'm going to go out and do I'm some doing research. some research. Yeah, yeah, I just got to go out. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So um, yeah, in Taiwan right now, there's no sanctioned, well, there's one sanctioned mountain bike trail uh, in Chui Ba National Park, but um, you know, you kind of have to find these trail networks here and there. But that mm. one, I, I really am passionate about. It's hard man, to do a PhD when you've got two kids and trying to do some <sighs> other things like I mean, yeah, just doing a PhD well, alone. Is, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah, totally. Don't want to undersell right. the fact that actually doing the PhD, but it's kind of, it's a good, it's a deep work, right? Like yeah, you actually just have to sure. sit there. And so like- A uh, chunk of your life too. I've got a couple of years to quit still, so. <laughs> <laughs> How many years in are you? One year. And this is at NTU, Taida. Yeah, Taida. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so. Um, wow. Yeah, I think because we've got this, other project bubbling along. I'm just going to take a couple bird classes this year. So you have to do some courses to finish your PhD. Mm. Um, and then this will allow me to maybe take a couple classes that are relevant to maybe climate or sustainability or resource management or something like that. Something that is not going to force me to like, you know, read a thousand articles or publish journals over a semester. So I think the one thing is I just have to manage it over time. I can't completely separate from the PhD, even though things are kind of starting to get a little bit busier, mm. you know, otherwise I'll, I'll never go back. <laughs> yeah. Still have a year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So huh. th that's also uh, something that I'm working on. And then I teach part-time lecturer at Ming Chuan University at their international college. So I teach tourism. I teach a couple of classes each is semester. Is that the one in the main campus in Shirling or is that in Taoyuan or? In, yeah, in Guishan. Yeah, oh, in Taoyuan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I see. Um, so I get a chance to connect with other colleagues who are doing research. So myself and one of the professor at the International College, we published the first peer-reviewed article on mountain biking in Taiwan mm. a couple of years ago. And then I've been able to, through that, connect it with another colleague. And now I usually do one research project with the Ministry of Science and Technology a semester. I'm not yet leading these applications in the grants, but this professor has been able to bring me on and, and mm. I've been able to support that. So like I said earlier in the, on the pod, it was, mm. it's a hard place to carve out your career. And so at least in tourism, because it's, I mean, it's COVID, so it's really hard. I kind of have to be a jack of all trades and do a whole bunch of different things. But right. What do you suspect will change after COVID is over with? The borders are back open. Uh, life is back to normal. What do you suspect will happen or what kind of opportunities do you foresee in Taiwan in the tourism or any of these kind of sectors that you're interested in? Yeah, I think a lot of Taiwanese are going to go traveling. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like, I think a lot of them are going to go People, overseas. Everyone's itching to get out of here, actually. Yeah, even if it's just, you know, if it's to Japan or Korea or, or Singapore or other parts of Southeast Asia, I think there's going to be an exodus a little bit for mm -hmm. for some time. I don't know. It's, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, even though the borders 
where the COVID policies were still strict before Nancy Pelosi came and arrived, <laughs> there was a, there was not that much attention currently about Taiwan. I mean, it, the sheen of the COVID response had kind of been dusted up a little bit. And now it's interesting because you think, oh, like Taiwan is kind of expecting the fact that the tourism industry is going to completely rebound. But the truth is everything that people know about Taiwan over the last four months is like, this place is under threat, right? Right. So I don't know what will right. happen. I mean, I, I, I'm hopeful that uh, there'll still be a, a, a group of people who can kind of see past that and, and will travel here. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of demand from regionally. I don't know about long haul travel. I think that's going to be a little bit harder mm. um, to get people. I mean, Taiwan has never really been a place where people are like, I want to go to holiday for, you know, for a long time in Taiwan. Right. Taiwan, I think, is connected to a larger kind of travel experience, which mm. is, includes Japan, Korea, maybe Southeast Asia. The sister uh, country of Thailand. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I think I think that the truth is, is that uh, I mean, we don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. And mm. there's, there's a whole bunch of conversations that are happening in the tourism industry right now that the the end of cheap travel is upon us. Um, mm. That's kind of already happening with inflation. But and again, like I mentioned, people are looking at more of a rather than a, the number of visitors that they can get. They want high yield visitors to their destination. So mm. potentially Taiwan would want the same thing, you think. Um, but that like, what does that mean for, it may not necessarily be as many people traveling, but hopefully we can focus on trying to get some high quality visitors. Not to say that anybody else can't travel, mm. uh, but I think that should be the priority. A variety of different experiences, you know, the hostel network, like the outdoor recreational activities, the convenience of travel in Taiwan, it's actually a pretty affordable place. So there's always going to be somebody that comes to Taiwan that's going to be, you know, more of that kind of quote unquote backpacker, you know, world traveler that's going to mm. be uh, traveling around. But I think the world's changed a little bit. I think it's going to be a little bit harder to, to do that because, mm -hmm. you know, if you're coming out of university, say you're in the States, you've got a ton of student debt. We won't touch on that topic right now. Exactly. That'll be another <laughs> podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, or even out of Canada, like you've got student debt. Mm -hmm. You're looking down, you're looking down the barrel of inflation, housing markets, unachievable. Like, what are you going to mm. do? Maybe you want to go travel. I don't know. Maybe you do. Or maybe you're like, you know what? I'm going to put this off until a little bit later, like my parents did, you know? Exactly. So I don't know uh, how old you are, I won't ask, but you know, we got a chance, I think, at least I know my generation did to travel the world and experience mm. a whole bunch of different things. And um, I hope that still exists in the future in a little bit more of a sustainable way. But I think there's going to be a period of time where it's it's going to be slow recovery for mm. long haul travel in Taiwan. Mm. Okay. So finally, I'll just ask you some uh, questions and if you can just give a kind of a short answer to uh, each of these. A little lightning round? Yeah, exactly. Right. We are having a little lightning round right now. Right. So your favorite national park in the world? Nahani National Park in Northwest Territories, Canada. What province is this? It's in a territory. So okay. Canada has three territories, the Yukon Territory, Nunavut, and Northwest Territories. So Nahani is a river and it's located in Northwest Territories. Huh, okay. Your favorite destination in Europe? I think it would be London. Uh, because mm. London is a pretty vibrant place. I mean, there's mm. amazing art, there's amazing music, and, you know, it's just got a lot, a ton of history towards it. That might not necessarily be the most colorful answer, but mm. uh, I think London is a, is a pretty amazing place when it comes to, uh, you know, being the heartbeat of, for better or worse, you know, it was the center of the world for a mm. little for a little while there. Mm. Um, they obviously did some terrifying things and uh, horrific things, rather. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, I think London to me is... Hmm. Your favorite destination in Asia? Taiwan? 
No, I don't know. <laughs> no, uh, that was a great answer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to say Taiwan. I think Taiwan mm. actually is a pretty amazing place. I've had some amazing experiences in Asia, Luang Prabang in, in Laos and traveling around mm. uh, Laos quite a bit was pretty amazing. I love Cambodia. Probably haven't had enough chance to travel to, like I would have loved to have spent another month or two in there. I did spend a month in both of those places, mm, but I would have nice. liked to have traveled a little bit more in there. But both those places. So much history. Yeah. It's so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And the landscapes are beautiful and it's just the, the food is amazing. The people are amazing. Mm. Um, but, you know, I, I'm an advocate for Taiwan as a tourism destination and a place mm. for people to come. And Taiwan, I can't really think of, I mean, I guess Singapore would be the case. Maybe Hong Kong was a little bit a while ago. But in terms of places that you can kind of pop in, plug in, start to do work, there's a great business community, there's a great international community. It's convenient, right? Like you can get around this place so, so well, mm. uh, including using Park Pass. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, but uh, no, parkbus.com.tw. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so I think, I think, yeah, those, those places to me. Favorite Taiwanese food? Guabao. Guabao. Okay. I don't nice. eat it a lot because I know it's not very good for me. You shouldn't be eating it a lot. But no, yeah, yeah. But you got to indulge every yeah, once in a while. Yeah, I think the guabao to me is just like it's it's the Taiwanese taco, you know? Like exactly. <laughs> if you can't get a good taco, go for guabao. guabao. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your favorite Taiwanese person? My wife. That's not a question. I just fed you that one. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah. You're welcome, wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, nice. So, and you mentioned this earlier, but... If you have to choose amazing places or amazing people? That's a tough question. Uh, that's a tough question. That's a tough question. Uh, I, I'm going to... I'm going to go with amazing places. You know, I'm sorry that mm. I'm maybe a negative oh. in terms of human pop, human life. Misanthrope um, you. Yeah, exactly. I just, I just love the fact that, um, you know, nature is resilient and uh, mm. you know, we're doing some serious damage to the planet right now. And if we can't turn that around, there's going to be some, uh, some irreversible changes that are done to the planet. It's already happening. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying I'd throw somebody else under the bus just to, to save the planet, but... Um, under the park bus. Under the park <laughs> Sorry, sorry. <laughs> we don't our do that. Apologies, our apologies. <laughs> no, I. Uh, uh, <laughs> I think. I think. To be honest, I just think that you know we got to. Um, yeah, we got to respect the place that we're living in right now, and if, if you know, but yeah, you know, at the same time, experiencing these places with other people is where you you know you create these really formative experiences in your mind, mm. right, and in your heart and in your soul, like. You know, like I was saying before about Dashai San in that trail, like I remember it with the people that I hiked it with. Mm, that's uh, why I asked you that question, actually. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a good one. Yeah, because uh, it's sometimes those two things are are connected, and you you can't. Yeah, I feel like if you went on that same trail without those people, it might not be that memorable of no. a of a moment. Right, no, no, you. and I mean like if you've backpacked around mm -hmm. um you know there's periods of time where you're just like you're not connected with people and you're kind of just doing your own thing either on purpose or just because you're not connected with with other people at the time and in the place but uh then you like you know those are not the memories that you have they're not as strong some of them are but mm. you know like you think about the people you meet along the way and stuff so mm. yeah it's a tough question for sure yeah exactly so what about i don't know if you can answer this in a short answer but 
because you mentioned this as well, your most transformational experience in life? He is very pensive right yeah, now. Yeah, I'm trying to Michael think about it. There's a couple digging deep. There's a couple things that have uh, uh, come to mind. Um, the day I left Broome in Australia, I was walking along the coast, taking pictures of the water and the coastline, and and just uh, kind of reconnecting with that place. So it was a really transformational experience, connecting with that uh, individual uh, who guided me on what her culture was about. And so mm. that very last day, um, as, I'm, as I'm leaving, I'm taking pictures, I turn back to the shoreline and like, it's very much like this, right? Shoreline. So okay. you're walking along the beach. I'm not anywhere near, I'm actually just right around the point from that location. We're just looking at a picture of, of the beach at uh, Eco Beautiful Beach Resort. Bay. Yeah. And I turn around and I'm taking pictures of the shoreline and I hear the splashing behind me and I turn around and there's a nine foot hammerhead shark that's in the shallows, just trying to capture some of these shore fish. And, wow. and I've spent about 15 minutes as it kind of just chased all these fish back and forth. And it was just, I mean, I, I, at one point I was just like, I didn't have my camera up and I wasn't taking any pictures. Uh, and then I realized, okay, I should probably take a picture because no one's going to believe this. Mm. Um, and, and then I walked back to the resort. Uh, Aisha was there, who was the guide that I worked with, uh, the daughter of the chief of the tribe. Mm. And she just kind of, I don't know, there was something about her that, that uh, kind of, I don't know if it was just me kind of presenting that or projecting that, but, mm. you know, she kind of just asked me these questions around like, oh, how was your experience? How was your day? these kinds of things. And, and I just told her about that and she goes, Oh yeah, that, you know, you, you've done well here kind of thing. So, mm. um, that would be one. Um, wow. I got bed bugs in London. <laughs> that was a pretty transformational experience. <laughs> Transform your body. Yeah, into a <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, never sleep in a hotel safe again. Um, no, I think, I think that would be it, man. Just the, the natural experiences, the great outdoors has, has shaped, me for sure. Hmm. Wow. Wow. That's a beautiful story. It reminds me of a trip I had in Colombia with uh, indigenous tribe as well, but I wasn't sober. Oh yeah. 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 So it was very transformational. Yeah, I'm sure it was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I bet uh, that would be transformational for sure. Ah, yeah. I haven't dabbled into the, uh, the psychedelics on that side of things. Mm -hmm. um, I think it would be a transformational experience. Mm. I think it would be something that would be Probably everybody should do, I imagine. Um, We're going to have to talk about this off the air. Okay. Yeah. We'll yeah. Do we'll for exactly. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. All right. Well, I know that you have two children who uh, you probably need to pick up pretty soon. I got to well. run back to school to pick these kids up. Exactly. We are on a, a strict timeline today. So uh, we will hopefully have another chance to connect deeper on any one of these topics. I mean, you know, I think we can dig deeper on any one of these for a uh, full another podcast so for sure uh, we'd love to speak with you again about any of these issues yeah man hopefully this conversation continues after the after the pod too so exactly 100 yeah. percent. i hope so so thank you very much uh for coming in here today thank you for sharing your stories and your insight and experience it was absolutely amazing thanks yeah. ken yeah thanks for reaching out and the opportunity to chat with you about this i put mocha to sleep so uh, hopefully this doesn't happen with your listeners too all right so everyone Good night and enjoy that sleep. Peace. Peace.